Here y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, back by the woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Bill Monroe was undoubtedly the inventor and thus father of what we call bluegrass music. And now there's a new museum for the man in his hometown of Rosine, Kentucky. Jody Fleener, executive director of the Ohio County Tourism Department, comes back by the woodpile to not only talk about the museum, but also shares some of her favorite stories about Mr. Monroe. The museum is built in Rosine, Kentucky, and that is because Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass, was born here. His home place is actually restored and is down the road two miles, and it's restored to its original features, and Bill moved into that home when he was 11. He lived there with his parents till his father passed, his mother passed away first, and then Bill's father passed away when he was about 13. At that time, the famous Uncle Penn, who was his mother's brother, and that's where the music came from, that side of the family. So at that time, he, Uncle Penn came and lived at the home. But that was not his cup of tea. He didn't like staying at the home, so Bill and he both moved back up to the cabin on the hill. And if you ever read about Bill, he contributes a lot of his sense of rhythm to living with his Uncle Penn. Late in the evening about sundown, how on the hill of the town, Uncle Penn played the fiddle on highway ring. You could hear it talk, you could hear it sing. And he began to play more things with Uncle Penn. He would actually take a mule ride with him as they played for different churches and square dances around the area. Now, well, Uncle Penn, he, of course, was a fiddle player, and uh-huh. he was immortalized in the song, but now he played a lot of, like, Scotch-Irish jigs and reels on his fiddle. Yes, yeah. yes, and um, he played all over the area here, and uh, people would have him play just even in the homes and things, and I've been told by someone that their grandmother told them that when they would go up to build, visit at the Monroe's, they would take all the furniture out of the master bedroom and dance in that room while Uncle Penn played in the next room over. Wow. <laughs> so, so that's one thing that we have in Rosine is we still have people that remember Bill growing up and remember the uh, tales and things of Bill. Back to Uncle Penn. Uncle Penn played till one day he, was, uh, he had a mule accident. He was coming home and his mule slipped and it fell and he was pinned on it and he actually hurt his hip. And then from then on, he didn't play as much, so he kind of stopped playing at that time. When the story's told, they usually talk about, of course, Uncle Penn being the big influence and the other influence being as a black gentleman. His name was Arnold Schultz. I assume played blues and gospel. Yes, and Bill also contributes a lot of his style to playing with him. One of the songs that comes to mind right now is... um, Build in a Building, the church song. But a story that I heard that really is dear to my heart is that um, an artist did a portrait of Bill and a portrait of Arnold Schultz, and he took them to the Grand Ole Opry. 
and they were going to hang them. And he presented them to Bill, and Bill was very thrilled. He took them into the Opry, and at that time, the Opry said, we'll hang yours, but we're not going to hang his. Oh, man. And Bill said, you're not hanging mine either. Wow. <laughs> Well, let's talk about bluegrass because most musical styles they evolve over time sometimes hundreds of thousands of years or these days just generations but i've heard it said many times that bill monroe is the only person who's actually invented in a whole music genre yep they call it the high lonesome the high lonesome sound but when you think about it bill was very innovative mm -hmm. because he is a musician that is also in the rock and roll hall of fame the Country Western Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and then Bluegrass. Mm -hmm. So when he just started playing that high lonesome song, it did change the style a little bit from what people were used to hearing. And he was also very experimental when he um, added the banjo into the mix. I know that when we bring back the festival, everybody loves the traditional music, but sometimes you have to think about it and think, yes, bluegrass is changing out there in the world. We still love our traditional, but Bill changed too with the times, and he yeah. had some different musics. Well, yeah, it's funny to me that bluegrass was considered kind of noisy and too fast, mm -hmm. and it, it was a new thing at one point, or even people, in the, I think, in the Opry were kind of annoyed by it. When you mentioned too fast, mm -hmm. that's another story came to mind. Bill's got his first mandolin, which was a tater bug. His mother bought it for him at the local Rosine store. Is that the one with like the rounded back? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. And she paid $3 for it. She brought it home and she instructed Bill he would be playing the mandolin. So the guitar and the fiddle were already taken by Charlie and Birch. Right. <laughs> so Bill learned to play the mandolin. When he got a little bit better and started playing on it, his brothers made him take off two strings because they told him he played it too loud and too fast. <laughs> wow. One thing that somebody has told me, and, and you can read how Bill was very strong, some of the guys said that their parents have told him that they could remember working with Bill and he could sing very easily pick up a railroad tie, that he was very strong. And they comment a lot that when they had work to do or things to do, they'd go round him up because they wanted his uh, strength and ability with him. Summertime is past and gone, and I'm on my way back home to see the only one I ever loved. Now the moon is shining bright, it lights my pathway to When Bill left here, he lived with his Uncle Penn until the age of 17. And then when he left, he went to Indiana and he stayed with his two brothers. And they actually worked at the Sinclair Dinosaur Refinery. And their part-time job was dancing. Yeah. So, Sinclair was the, the oil company, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. They had a famous so, icon, a little dinosaur. The little dinosaur. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So they actually, their part-time job was dancing. Mm -hmm. And then Charlie and Bill decided to try their rounded music, and they went out as the Monroe Brothers. But it wasn't until a bunch later, so. And then his first appearance for the Opry was in 1939. So Bill had been playing music around for his friends and things like that, but um, when he and Charlie broke out together as the Monroe Brothers, 
they were together for about four or five years. And then they, um, as brothers do, they had a difference and they split. That's when Bill went on to do the Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys. And Charlie went on to do um, Charlie Monroe and the Ramblers. For folks that are from outside of Kentucky, you know, everybody knows this is the Bluegrass State. Why do they call it that? With two reasons. Okay. We have our bluegrass music, <laughs> and then they also contribute the bluegrass early dew morning on our grass is blue for our horse country. It was a bluegrass state first before Bill yes. Monroe took the name. Yes, right. and that's where he got his bluegrass boys. Right. He actually named them for the bluegrass of the early morning dew bluegrass state of right. Kentucky. Right. And then the music just turned in. Nobody loved me, nobody cared. If life is I've longed for true love, searched everywhere. Nobody loved me, nobody cared. So Bill was um, born in Rosine, and he also loved to play baseball. The museum is built on a field that Bill and the Bluegrass Boys played baseball on. So it was. it's been told that when he would be in the area, he would call up, and he would say, we're in Nashville, but we're going to come by. I'm bringing the boys up. We want to play baseball. And they would get the Rosine Redlegs to play baseball against Bill and the Bluegrass Boys. That was another story that tied in with his strength, that when he did play, he was the pitcher because he had a lot of strength behind that arm. Were they pretty good? They were good. I have heard that they have said uh, Bill only hired a musician if he could play ball. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Let's talk about you. What's your first memories of Bill Monroe? When I moved to Kentucky, I'm actually a native of Wisconsin. I wonder your accent. <laughs> I know. People yeah. hang up on me a lot on the phone. They think they call, because we are called Ohio County, uh-huh. and they think that they have called Ohio, and they the go, state. oh, I'm sorry, and they hang up on me and call uh-huh. me back. So when I had heard a story a long time ago about Elvis Presley not writing Blue Moon of Kentucky, that that was actually a fellow called Bill Monroe that wrote it. It was on a night night to start was shining bright and they whispered from on high you love So I knew of Bill but I really didn't know that much of bluegrass music which now when I have this position and we put on things like the festival and stuff we have tons of people coming from the Wisconsin area as well as all over the United States mm-hmm. and foreign countries mm-hmm. So I when I first moved here I learned of Bill and then about five years ago, the position came open as a tourism director. So why did you move to, to this town? A man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a man that I actually met in Florida, but uh-huh. his hometown was in uh, Beaverdam, Kentucky. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, But one thing I've learned, and I really love my job, and I love the fact that when you're in bluegrass, it's a family. Bluegrass is a family. It's not just about the music and just about the um, performances and things. A good example is as I'm planning the Jerusalem Ridge celebration for 2018, it hasn't been held at the home place for about five years. And I think I went after two bands. The rest all contacted me and wanted to play back at Bill's home place. Oh, cool. There was a lady that ran the general store, and she would uh, have people from all over come and ask to see Bill Monroe's home place. So she had a fella that would hook up his tractor, drag them up there, and that's before the house was restored. So she was very instrumental. Her name was Eleanor Bratcher, and she was very instrumental in contacting the local authorities and the governor and the representatives at the state offices, and they wrote a grant 
and we got a, a grant. It was called the Rosine Project. And they were going to remodel the home, update and restore the home, and build a museum. Well, many things happened. The first thing that happened is our present judge executive was at the uh, park system. He purchased the land that the museum is on right away, and then they went to work at the home place. Well, many things happened, and eventually the um, Rosine project just sort of died away. So the local people have always wanted the museum to be here. In fact, Bill had made a suggestion that the museum be in Rosine. He said, if there's ever to be one, I would like it to be in Rosine. Mm -hmm. So um, it was about three years ago that our current judge executive got busy and started working on a way to make that come to fruition. And uh, we received a grant from then uh, Governor Brochier from his discretionary funds, and it was dedicated to build the museum in Rosine. So it's been a long time coming. People have waited for a long time, and they were very excited when we did the soft opening. Is it the hope to make it self-sufficient, or, or is the, the state going to support it, you think, for the foreseeable future? Yeah. Nope, we are on our own. Okay. We will continue to fundraise. Mm -hmm. We have a blue moon walkway where people purchase bricks mm -hmm. and they will be walking out. It'll lead them out to a statue of Bill Monroe with his mandolin and his hat on, but he's waving customers into the museum. <laughs> and um, it'll be, we hope to be self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. And so far it's been great. I uh, We haven't done a lot of advertising, not knowing for sure when the soft opening will be. But when you look at our guest registry, it is probably 90% of people outside of Kentucky yet. So in the museum itself, what are some items? Obviously, you guys are collecting stuff. What are some of the more interesting items that y'all have acquired? Well, we do have the last mandolin that Bill played. Um, it was given to him while he was in the nursing home, and he played that one. Um, we do have his straw hat. We have several of his albums that he held dear to him. And of course, the main room has the last car, his last Cadillac. Bill always drove a Cadillac, mm -hmm. and we have the last silver Cadillac that he had. People continue to donate things to us, and uh, it's sort of like we never know what's going to show up, mm -hmm. because we even have a little note uh, that was written to Bill asking if he could uh, someone could have permission to come over and coon hunt that night when he said <laughs> So I thought that was interesting. There was a mirror that he had, and it was loose in its frame. So we took it out of the frame, and you know how you stick pictures up yeah. on the edge of a mirror? There were several little notes and things in that that were getting laminated and getting able to view. Wow. And there were just a lot of little personal notes that will be very special for people to see. Our judge was a very close friend of his, and when he would go down to visit him, um, we have one place in the museum that is dedicated to th items that people made and gave to Bill, mm -hmm. and our judge told me that when you went to see him, the big thing he had was a kennel that, do that people loved to give him foxhounds and dogs mm -hmm. because Bill was a fox hunter. And of course, Jeru the home is restored on Jerusalem Ridge, which he talks about in song. <laughs> Although you have some stuff set up here, you have a whole lot more coming. And uh, talk about some of the things, at least in theory, that are on its way here. Well, that is one reason that we did the um, 
soft opening because people will call me and they have items of bills or items that they have that they did with bill and they want to donate them but they were waiting for the opening so we did the soft opening so the community would start enjoying it and also to give people the I sense that it is it is here we do have the museum one person called and they said my dad had played with him just at a festival at one time and he actually didn't have any shoes and if you know, Bill was a very snappy dresser, and you dress the part. So Bill lent him a pair of shoes, and when the thing, and when the concert was over, he was like, "Keep them." Oh wow! <laughs> so so that fellow has promised us to send up Bill's shoes. Well, along with that, James Monroe told me a story that he and uh, a friend were at a fairground, and they were Bill. James was playing with Bill at the time. And they were out messing around and they heard the band start warming up. So they came running back. James grabbed his guitar and jumped up on stage. And Bill just stopped and said, go get your hat. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. you were going to be the part. And, uh, yeah, so. He was about uniformity. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I was going to say, if people make the trek up here from wherever they're coming from, what are some of the things in, in Rosine that they can see besides the museum? Yeah. Well, we do call it the Sounds and Scenes of Bluegrass. And we like him to start at the home place and then do the grave site where Bill and most of his family is buried. And then Uncle Penn's cabin is open and they see Uncle Penn's cabin and then come to the museum. And then if it's a Friday night, we have our Rosine Barn Jamboree, which actually in 2016 was picked from one of New York's 52 places to visit in the world. So we're pretty proud of that. But then once you've had your fill of bluegrass, you'll keep it on your radio and you can travel up the weekend of the festival. A little town in our county called Fordsville is having their Fordsville days and they are actually retiring the monster truck for its life. It was actually built and created by a fellow that's from Fordsville and he's bringing it back home for its last expedition and then they're going to retire. I wonder, I wonder what he's going to do. be a big hole. Yeah, but they are advertising that because it will be its last performance. So if you're into the monster trucks, that will be here that weekend. And we also have two awesome veteran museums here and we have a railroad museum uh, the uh, depot has turned the depot into a railroad museum. And we've had people from all over come to see that railroad museum. Then you can go down to Muhlenberg and you have the Everly Brother Museum. And then, of course, back to Bluegrass. After you've seen where Bluegrass was born and you visited Bill's home and his gravesite and the museum, then we do encourage people to go over to Owensboro because the International Museum is there. It will hopefully be opening this fall. And of course, that's what happened to the music. Bill being inducted into all these Hall of Fames and the influence he has, it went international. And the Bluegrass Hall of Fame is there too. She's tailor made. Lord, she ain't no hand me down. One of the stories that I enjoy, and it just tells how Bill was such a down-to-earth person, he was at the Grand Ole Opry getting ready to perform, and the stagehand came in and said, Bill, there's someone here that wants to meet you. And he said, okay, and he brought him back, and he said, Bill, this is Frank Sinatra. Frank, this is Bill Monroe. So they visited for a while and stuff, and pretty soon Bill got the tap on the door. It was time for him to come out on stage. So he said, well, i got to get going. And as he put his hat on, he said, well, young fella, good luck with your little music career. 
<laughs> you didn't know who he was? I don't know. <laughs> but he was definitely down to earth and going to wish him well. <laughs> If you'd like to learn more about the museum, you can visit the website at BillMonroeMuseum.com. Every time I see you, mama, you're always on the street. I personally had some brief interactions with Bill Monroe towards the end of his life in and around Goodlettsville, Tennessee. Talking with Miss Fleener brought back some of those memories and reminded me that I had written a short essay about those events. It's called On Monroe's Farm. Our steps stir the dirt's dust and gravel up with brittle grass sass which crumbles crass as we follow the fence post road leading to Bill Monroe's farm, kept quiet in the valley folds of the Tennessee forest rolls. I'm there with my friend Dunn, who's spent a lot of time with Mr. Monroe these final days and I think may have received a blessing and anointing from Bill's shaky mandolin hand. We're there to help cut the grass, feed the livestock, and other chores. Dunn, and his dedication to his boyhood hero, has been coming out here regular to help out an American treasure, living in a two-room cabin just as neglected and still standing, solid as a weathered barn outside a booming, buzzing modern city recently awakened in the American Southland. We're both greeted by a pitiful, humble, one-eyed dog who, thanks to a mule some time ago, has the gift of one-eyed hindsight not to walk behind a mule. The dog looks toward the direction of a noon announcing rooster crow. Next, he turns his matte-haired head to finish greeting us and must have forgotten how close he was to me and thuds his face and bad eye into my leg. Looking up at me to see if I noticed and somewhat embarrassed, hobbles off to take care of that rooster, maybe to redeem himself or maybe to go cry with his one eye. And Dunn recalls about a time Mr. Monroe came out of the log house there on the farm, tongue-lashing the dog for no apparent reason, except maybe for something the dog did 15 years ago, Bill just now remembering it. Our hero at the time of this visit to the farm was himself crippled and almost completely mute, laid up in a hospital room, maybe in his stereotype defined suit with Lincoln, Bill's caretaking Lakota Indian best friend, with the grin within of St. Francis by his bedside while me and Dunn are at his farm side, sitting on a bench grown into a shade tree, owning Monroe's pocket pen graffiti stating Tennessee Blues as the first number I ever wrote. And I muse to Dunn that Bill's death will mark the end of a generation of gentlemen and hospitable women who made us laugh in hardship and sang our weary bodies to sleep, unlike their children and grandchildren who seem to forget to dream and won't let us forget our brutal life and strife or let us rest at the breast of the Savior without the clatter of accusations of unfairness, pointing their fingers at the generations before them and at the Father of the Savior, while with their fingers still pointing, accept all of the ease given them, dripping with the sweat and tears of the accused. We get up from the bench and head into the barn beside the house, where we find tons of fan mail, all opened, and a suitcase embalmed with a protective coating of chicken droppings, which we open straight away with the rusty haggard hinges fiddling a weeping waltz for tons of papers with yellow tinges, bearing what we know will be the dead sump scrolls of Monroe, verses of songs not heard, and we laugh at all the correctly spelled words scratched out and replaced with misspelled words. I sit down on a rotten wooden chair there in the barn and think back to the bar where I first saw old man Monroe, the little frail-looking man in the big suit, strong arms strumming, a Scotch-Irish jig, echoing off of Appalachian Mountain and twisted off blue-greened Kentucky grassed hills. 
when he finished the song, looking to our table and saying, what should I play now? Done nudging me and being prodded, I holler, Molly and Tim Brooks. Bill looked over to the banjo player, who'd already started into the rapid-fire racing horse reel and makes the day of an insignificant kid from Indiana, only to find that the grace is not to end there, for when Mr. Monroe says goodnight, struggles down from the stage and heads straight to our little table of cornfield kids curious of all things over the tassels, and with the grip of a farmer, shakes our hands and arms and says, Howdy, howdy. It's good to see you young people tonight. You should have saw the unmovable schoolgirl grins we wore all the way home, and in our beds, wide-eyed with no intention of sleeping, but all the intentions of dreaming. At a place called the Bell Cove in Hendersonville, Tennessee, at the end of one of his standards, Bill started going to town on his mandolin, the band soon a-following him, and they proceeded to bang out a haphazardly just-put-together song. We know this because at the end of the song, Mr. Monroe announced it. He asked someone in the crowd to give it a name. A rambunctious lady hollered out, Magnolia Waltz, though it was a far cry from any speed or beat resembling a waltz. But Bill said, okay, the Magnolia Waltz. Somebody write that down, he said, turning to the band. All the musicians nodded and grinned at him, and each one assured the father of bluegrass, we will, all while no one was in the process of doing so. Brother Monroe pointed to the upright bass player, who seemed to be grinning the most. You there, write it down, and proceeded to watch the musician until he indeed at least found a pen and wrote something down on a paper drink coaster. As far as I know, the song never made it onto a record. There was another time, I believe it was the last birthday party they ever had for Bill, and we were all shuffling in the packed in like small stinky fish club. Ricky Skaggs and his band were up on stage playing one of Bill's tunes, and there was this decrepit elderly woman in front of me struggling to ease down a flight of I think three steps. People were behind us shoving, trying to get whatever was clogging up the flow unclogged. Me doing my Boy Scout best to absorb the shove shocks for the seasoned citizen hobbling before me. Then the band on stage broke into Uncle Pin, and from out of nowhere, the little old lady became possessed by the spirit of a cutter rug, and right there started clogging like a mad woman. Feet calf-kicking the folks in front of her, and elbows power-poking me in the belly. Later on at the party, I ventured up to the birthday boy's table, and there was Mr. Monroe, the little man in his big crumpled suit. And seeing he was by himself just looking at his piece of cake on the table, I went to wish him a blessed birthday. I patted him on the shoulder. I bellowed out a, Happy birthday, Bill, at which his head flew up, nearly losing his cowboy hat, and with cake icing on his nose said, Thank you, thank you. And then he went promptly back to sleep. Back to sitting in the rotten chair under the shelter of the collapsing barn roof, Dunn grins chiming in on my reminiscing about how the birthday previous, he was helping Bill open birthday cards in his log cabin. Bill opened one and it was from Minnie Pearl, who just at the sight of her name prodded Bill and Dunn to smile. And then Mr. Monroe opened up another one, which was from Monica Lewinsky's boyfriend. Brother Monroe, shy of any smiles, dropped the card from the President of the United States into the trash can and proceeded to tack up Minnie's card over top the fireplace mantel, the card looking just so proud to be there. All of these think-back moments on the farm occurred a couple months before Bill would utter to a nurse, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, given one of those in a sentence, explain your existence sentences, and then given up the gentleman's ghost to be with Christ and his father and to hunt for Uncle Penn to say, guess what happened after you left? Thus my visit to Monroe's farm ended with only a guess of what was to come. I reminisce about his last performance at the Ryman, on the restored wooden stage, in his casket, the eerie hauntings of my last days on earth reverberate in the structure. And as the line of folks inch alongside to view our laid-out teacher, 
Dunn lays a quarter in Bill's coffin, kind of like how the old man would always give little kids quarters, at which everyone else followed Dunn's lead until Monroe is covered in quarters. Now, only days after the dust of the man has been buried under the bluegrass, under the watch of the blue moon, that weight places itself on my chest, for though he had let go of us, I find myself not wanting to let go of he. And though I have yet to meet any one soul who knew every song Bill Monroe fashioned, we all still wanted a little more. But I can remember. My sense of loss and my spirits hollow, while Dunn heads down the little dirt road, offering to the wooded valley a Scottish lament whistle, me soon to follow, my legs brushing what Lincoln would call bumper thistle. And that my last time there on Monroe's farm, my footsteps causing the porch to creak, which caused wood folk ghosts to seep from the weary wood and tease me with the sounds of songs and melodies that from this porch were taken by the wind and hovered o'er these hills to be brought back again. The music, the spirit of a man, blowing through grass and weeds, harmonies colored by the guidance the blue moon bleeds. We'll never neglect to remember the listening man who retold what he heard in his head with his strong arm and gentle high lonesome mouth. And how we will remember Mr. Monroe will be by shining on, shining on, the one true yet still gone. In the corner, back by the woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and podbean.com. We'll see you on the flip side. Blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and said goodbye.